If you're visiting with us this morning, if you're wondering, does the bringing of flowers at this particular point in the service have some particular significance to it? The only significance is that I forgot to bring them in earlier, so that's it. Uh, As we turn now to the preached word of God, please open with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible today, uh, two options for you. You've got the bulletins there in front of you where uh, our text is, uh, is written for you. And then also in those blue Bibles on page 257, you will find our text for this morning. Now, if you were not with us uh, last week, we, we covered a rather substantive section of uh, 2 Samuel. We actually covered most of chapter 2 through chapter 3, through chapter 4 as well. And basically that section described the warfare that took place between the southern kingdom of Judah, that was the house of Saul, David is of the tribe of Judah, and the warfare that took place then with the northern kingdom of Israel. That was where uh, Abner had installed Ishbosheth as the king after the death of Saul, uh, and that northern portion is called Israel, or it's also referred to in these texts as the house of Saul. And it was not pretty. Those were, those were a couple of tough chapters as we worked our way through them. Uh, but we saw behind it the purposes of God being worked out in the rise of the house of David. Now today in our text we see the culmination of that rise and the inauguration of David's reign from the city of David. Okay, this, you're going to see in here, this is called the city of David, Jerusalem. As you know, there's now going to be then two cities called the city of David, right? Uh, Bethlehem is the city of David, the city where he was born. Jerusalem is the city of David, the city in which he reigned. Zion, the city of God is being established here. And so just set the scene in the passages that have already been read for us. What you've got taking place here is the anointed one of God, the anointed king, coming into the city, which is not yet the holy city, but as he comes into it and begins to establish it, becomes the holy city of God, the anointed one of God coming into the city that is the holy city, to which we, the people of God, respond, blessed is he who comes in the name of God of the Lord. So hear this portion of the Word of God as I read it for us. I'm just going to read the first 12 verses of this chapter. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years at Hebron. He reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites and the inhabitants of the land 
who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, and David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack, quote unquote, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from, Milo, from the Millo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. O Jerusalem, Lord, we pray that today as we look at your word, that the Spirit who has given it to us and preserved it for your church will be the same Spirit that applies it to us now in our lives. Thank you for your mighty works of old. Thank you for your mighty works to come as well. We pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if the last several chapters that we looked at were enough to make you want to weep and mourn as David did, then I certainly hope that this section that I've read for us and that we are considering today uh, will make you want to dance and shout when you hear what is taking place here. These, for Israel, for the people of God, are long-awaited days. They are long-anticipated days, and they are from really old promises that have been given to the people of God. And it has involved long-suffering to bring us to this point. Long-suffering on the part of the people as they have been waiting for the kingdom to be established, the king to be established, and endured most recently seven years of intertribal warfare that took place. And a long-suffering time for God, who has patiently put up with, been gracious to, preserved his people until this particular Day. Today, what I hope is that we can join in kind of the ancient joy that is set before us today. And, and I want to suggest to you just at the outset here, and this is not an outline of a sermon at all, it's just a way to think about this. I want to suggest to us right at the outset that there are three ways that we can rejoice in the passage that is before us today in these truths. First of all, we can rejoice with Israel in this day and all that it meant for them and all of the ways in which God fulfilled his promises and worked mightily on behalf of his people. This was hard to imagine that this day would come for a people who were enslaved and captives in Egypt for all of those years. And yet here we have now arrived at this day and we can rejoice in the mighty works of God that he did. But secondly, we can rejoice in a day that is, quite honestly, better than this day that was yet to come for them, but dawned when Jesus got on that donkey and came into Jerusalem. And the crowds hailed the coming of the king into that. 
we can rejoice in that day anticipated here in this one as well when David's son comes into Jerusalem. And third, we can rejoice in the hope of the eternal city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem where King Jesus reigns and where King Jesus is in process even now of populating this heavenly city. Right now, the city is being populated with the saints who have gone before us. Right now, the king of the city is still extending his kingdom in this world. Right now, the king in his city is preparing a place for us to come and be with him. The king reigns in the heavenly Jerusalem and he is populating it with his people. He's filling it with his people to their joy, to his glory. Jerusalem here is a shadow of that great dwelling place of God. All right, so here's what I wanted you to do today. I simply want to walk us through the passage uh, today. And if, if it is helpful for you to kind of see how uh, this, the movements that exist here within this passage, as I've, as I've chunked it out here for us, there are really three movements that exist here. The first is the king and his people, the king anointed, the people united. That's the first step that we'll see. And then we'll see at, that, 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 that the king goes into and takes the city of the king, the city of David, and then we will see the house established, the kingdom of God established in this place. All right, so reminder then of the setting of where we are in the story here as we work our way through it. If you will recall, Abner had installed Ishbosheth in the northern kingdoms. Abner then got tired of Ishbosheth and decided that he was going to come to David and bring all of Israel under David's rule. However, as that was happening, Joab, the commander of David's army in the south, murdered Abner. And in addition to that, Ishbosheth himself is also murdered. And so once again, as we saw in the first chapter of 2 Samuel, David is left as the only anointed one, the only king left standing. Now, as I said, Abner had been in process of trying to bring these northern tribes under the reign of David. But now you've got two murders. You've got murders of the king of the northern tribe, and you've got murders of the commander, the power behind the northern tribe, and it hangs in the balance. It hang, what's going to happen now uh, with the murders of these two key people in the story? And hangs in the balance until we get to right here. The tribes come to King David at Hebron, where he had been reigning for seven years, and praise God, they continue the plans uh, and the purposes that Abner had set forth to bring themselves under David. And as they come, and as our text begins, we can notice that they give three reasons. Let, me, let, let us give you three reasons why we think we should be under you as our king. And they're in the first two verses of our passage this morning. They come to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. 
Now, flesh and bones, that'll preach. You can, do, you can make an entire summer sermon series and call it flesh and bones. It'll preach. But the idea is here is they're going back to an older idea of the family, the household of God, right? They could set up divisions, and they've been at each other for years now and in a particular war here for these last seven years in which you identify yourself as, no, 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 we're not of your clan. We're of the house of Saul. You're of the house of David. These tribes are different. We're different families. But now they make an appeal to an older reality. And, of course, the older reality is that they are the children of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Right? That's how we're one. We are your bone and your flesh. Second reason that they give is in the second verse. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. So what they say is, listen, we know that when Saul was king and after you had defeated Goliath, you rose to such a position of prominence and such a position of strength in the army of Saul that we used to serve under you, right? You, you used to be our commander in the battles. In uh, 1 Samuel 18, 30, it says this, Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all of the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. This is what they're connecting to here. They're saying, listen, we, we get it. We know how this thing worked. You were the one who led us in battle all those times, and we recognize that, and we remember that. Then they give a third reason why they should be uniting with David, and the third reason is the second part there of verse 2. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Now, it's worth asking the question, if all of this was true, and if all of this is true now, why didn't this dawn on you seven years ago, right? <laughs> because all of this was true seven years ago as well. But people are people. It didn't work out that way. There was all of this tension. But this now appears to be, by all accounts, a sincere effort to reconnect, to bring these things that have been at war with one another, this northern kingdom and this southern kingdom, to bring them back together. And so uh, the result of this is, the reasons that are given here, is that they make a covenant together. And in the covenant, the king pledges to his people, the people pledge to their king, their troth, their loyalty, their fidelity, their love, their oneness. And they anoint him as king over Israel. And he is Israel and Judah's king for 33 years. Now, let me just say something here parenthetically uh, for those of you who get confused by these names. Sometimes when Israel and Judah are at war, you refer to them as Israel, North, Judah, South. But once they are united, you can then refer to them collectively as Israel. Okay, so he's now Israel's king as a whole for 33 years. Behold, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. I mean, this is civil war. This is guys who used to fight together. This is bone of bone and flesh of flesh who are fighting against one another when the Philistines are right over there dancing in the streets because not only have they defeated Israel, but now Israel's fighting amongst themselves. And now there's a reconciliation between them. 
Now there's a uniting underneath of the long-expected anointed king. And how sweet is reconciliation. This is on a national level. But do you know how sweet reconciliation is? Have you pursued reconciliation with someone with whom you were in conflict? Have you sought it? Have you initiated it? Have you rejoiced in a reconciliation that takes place? It is sweet. And so this is a sweet day when the king is anointed over all of them and they are reconciled. Now next, the next thing that happens here is the king takes his men into battle. The king establishes his kingdom, he fights his enemies, and he protects his people. That's what kings do. Now, we saw this back when we were in 1 Samuel, when Saul was anointed king for all of the failings that Saul has. Saul started out well. Saul started out doing exactly this thing as well. You become the king, you go into fight. You go into the battle. And it's true for Saul, and it's true for Jesus as well. When is Jesus anointed? When is he anointed king? He's anointed king at his baptism. At his baptism, he's anointed not only with the water, but with the Spirit of God who descends down upon him. And what happens immediately? You gotta go fight. The Spirit of God takes him out in the wilderness to fight the enemy of enemies. And that's what happens with kings. They go out and they go into battle. Here, the battle takes place in Jerusalem establishing his kingdom. Now, at the end of this, we're not going to read the uh, last from verse 17 uh, on through the end, and I'm not going to look at it next week as well. Uh, but there's a great description here of a battle against the Philistines. The Philistines here that David's now uh, in charge. They don't like this idea. They try to get rid of David. David seeks after the Lord, and the Lord gives him victory over the Philistines as well. But here, Jerusalem and the taking of Jerusalem is a strategic move for the king as he begins his united reign. So Hebron, and I know we don't typically, we don't naturally or easily think of all of the geography uh, here, and that's, I think, most of the time fine for us not to know exactly where we're talking about, but it does make a difference here. Hebron, where David had been reigning as king, was a city squarely in Judah. It was squarely down in the south. It was a southern town, it was a southern city, and it doesn't make well as a capital for a united kingdom, this southern city. On the other hand, Jerusalem was a city that kind of straddled. It straddled Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin is Saul's tribe, okay? And Judah, again, is David's tribe. So Jerusalem is kind of nicely situated as a city that's right there on the border between the two. In fact, if we took time to go back to the book of Joshua and the book of Judges, we'd find it hard to figure out whether it's actually in Judah or is it actually in Benjamin and who's actually responsible for taking this particular city and holding it for God as part of the land that God had given to the people. So its location is strategic in that, but there's one more aspect of it that is significant as well, and that is, again, if we look back at Joshua and Judges, we would see that while the surrounding area around Jerusalem is taken, that in fact the Benjaminites, Saul's tribe, were unable to actually drive out the Jebusites, who are now mentioned in this passage, from that city. 
And so here you go. Here's an opportunity for a united king, or for an anointed king with a united kingdom under one banner, under one signal, to go together and to fight against a city that neither of them have been able to take up until this particular point. It's a common enemy. This is a strategic place. It's a strategic move to unite the people further together. Let's do together what neither of us were able to do individually against this long-standing enemy. But it's not only strategic. It isn't only strategic. Jerusalem isn't simply David's choice. Jerusalem is, in fact, as will become clearer and clearer as we move through this, it is God's choice. So we have to understand this on a timeline. Go back a thousand years, a thousand years before the events that are described for us here, before this taking of Jerusalem. And a thousand years prior to this, Abraham was returning from the defeat of the five kings who had ransacked areas and cities around him. And as he does so, he passes by Salem, Salem, Zion, Jerusalem, three names, city of David, four names for the same place. He passes by Salem, and as he passes by Salem, he's met by the priest of Salem, who is the king Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness. And Abraham recognizes that, you know what, this is a little bit unusual. I owe a tithe, I owe honor to this king of this place named Salem. His, he is the king of righteousness, and he's the king in Salem, which is Salem Shalom. So he's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. So we've met a character in this place who is the king of righteousness and who is the king of peace as well. Now in the time of the wilderness, 500 years then after that, 500 years after that time with Abraham, the people of Israel are in the wilderness. And God has promised that when he establishes the people in the land, he would likewise choose a particular place wherein his name would dwell. Right? When, when, the, when the patriarchs, when the early patriarchs went through the land, there wasn't one place. They would establish an altar here, they would establish an altar here, they would dig a well here, they would dig a well there. They were sojourners. They were moving about in that particular place. Obviously, when they were in Egypt for all those years, there was not a particular place. But there came to be a promise from God that when I give you the land that I've promised to give you, then, at that time, all of this wilderness, uh, even though the tabernacle is with you in the wilderness, all of this wilderness and all of this moving about is going to settle down. And I am going to choose a particular place where I will establish my name. My name will dwell there. It is a place of God's habitation. It is a place of worship. It is a place where God says, I'm going to make my dwelling place there, and it's a city, and you're going to be able to dwell in this city and come to it as well. What was lost at Eden was the ability to dwell with God. What was lost in that, in that place that God had established where God had fellowship with our first parents, was the ability to dwell in the presence of God because of our sin and the rest of the story, the rest of the scriptures are the story of God saying, 
I'm going to restore what you messed up. I'm going to draw closer and closer to you. And there are steps along the way with it. There are steps along the way with the tabernacle. And this is another huge step that we're taking. A city is about to be established according to the promises of God. This is the heart of God's covenant relationship with his people where God says, I will dwell with you. I will make my dwelling among you. Now, there are countless places in Scripture that we could turn to see this. I've just chosen two. Just listen to them. Don't turn there right now with me. Psalm 76 is one of them. Here are the first two verses of Psalm 76. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. Southern north. Okay, right? In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem. His dwelling place in Zion. God's, we understand, and sorry, sorry, another parenthetical here for a moment. Everybody understands that God can't be contained in one particular place, right? That's later. David understands that as well. All of Israel understood that as well. But this was the particular place where God said, I'm going to meet with you here. And in a particular way, in a special way, I'm going to dwell with my people here. Psalm 76. Now, by way of reminder, last week's service started off with us singing Psalm 76. Psalm 76, we sang these first verses. God is known among his people was the opening hymn last week, and that's where this, uh, this comes from, is Psalm 76 as well. Now I'm going to read another first two verses of a psalm for you. Psalm 87. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. More than all of the dwelling places of Jacob, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. There's a city of God that is now in process right now with these events being established among men. And, of course, that's going to be our closing hymn in just a few moments as we conclude this sermon. So David and his army approach Jerusalem. You have the long-expected anointed king back in Deuteronomy. God said uh, that I will provide a king for you. You have his people approaching the long-awaited city, the dwelling place of God. We might say that while the Jebusites had held on to that town for many years, at this point, they don't stand a chance. There's no chance that the Jebusites are going to remain in Jerusalem after this battle is done. Their house is about to be plundered, but that doesn't keep them from mocking and taunting. That doesn't keep them from that, saying, <laughs> and, and just let's make sure we understand this correctly. This is not a statement about the lame and the blind that they can't know the Lord. This is a statement that the Jebusites make saying, even the lame and the blind of us could take care of you guys coming to get us. Nobody takes this fortress. We've been here, well, for longer than 400 years, but for at least the 400 years, you haven't been able to get us out yet, and you're not going to be able to get us out. And so they mock, they taunt. And David says, oh yeah, oh yeah, we'll see how that actually works out. And here's a truth for us that we've already seen in this. Uh, the, the reality is this, the Word of God says that in every age there will always be those who are opposed to the kingdom of God, who will mock and who will taunt the people, the king, and his kingdom. Do not be surprised 
Don't be surprised, don't be discouraged by the fact that people mock the church of Jesus Christ, that people mock and taunt you as a Christian. It is nothing new. It's part and parcel of being a follower of God in a fallen world. They will, sooner or later, receive exactly what they deserve, and what they deserve is the ire of the king. And that's what the Jebusites receive, the ire of the king. The Jebusites are defeated, their mocking is silenced, and then we read verses 9 and 10. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. We don't exactly know what the millow is, probably some part of the wall, um, and it goes inward from there. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. The Lord was with him. The dwelling place of God is with men. The anointed king, David, establishes his kingdom. He establishes his residency in the city of God. Isaiah says, says it this way, and Isaiah is several hundred years after David, and Isaiah is kind of looking back and looking forward as he makes this statement in Isaiah 11. In that day, in that day, in the day that there comes forth a, a shoot from the root of Jesse, Jesse the father of David, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. There's a glory that belongs to the one who is of Jesse, to the one who has come, his signal stands over all and unites all of the followers of the king. Now the glory then of this physical house is described for us uh, in verses 11 and 12. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Folks, this is an Old Testament picture, but this is a picture of what Jesus meant when he said, in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I tell you that I go to prepare a place for you? A house is prepared for David in the city of God. Now, if you know this story, if, if this isn't your first time through uh, 2 Samuel and through the history of this, you know that we will have to wait for the construction of the temple itself. But we won't have to wait long for the ark to be brought into the city of God, thus securing it as the city of God. In fact, we only have to wait till next week. It's the next chapter wherein that takes place. But I don't want to miss the significance of the anointed one in his house in Jerusalem. Now that ultimately needs to be the temple that will be constructed. But think of what Jesus says. I, I know it applies to the temple. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Where else would you expect to find me? I'm in my father's house. 
in the city established by my father as the anointed son. Now, what I'd like you to do is take your bulletins and turn again to page three. Page three, you see there once again, Psalm 122. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a place of peace. Verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Verse 7, peace be within your walls. Verse 8, peace be within you. It is a place of peace. It is a place of righteousness and of justice, of fair judgment being distributed. It is a place of unity, a place to which the tribes go up. Not just the tribes of Israel, not just the tribes of Judah, but to which the tribes go up, to which the nations are summoned to go up as well. And Hiram is already there a nation sending materials over there for the construction of the house of David. It's a place of worship. The tribes go up there to give thanks to the name of the Lord. It is a place of gladness. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. It is a place of grace. It is a place of security. But, O oh, Jerusalem, I titled the sermon today, O Jerusalem. Psalm 122 has O Jerusalem as an exclamation, a way to say it, at least in English. O Jerusalem is double-edged. O Jerusalem can be a, a, a phrase, an exclamation of longing. Ah, I can't wait to be in Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, how sweet it is. But it can have another side to it as well. Because when Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. We've gone from gladness to lament of the very same city, of the very same place. When people, when God's people forsake their God and his king, or when the nations forsake the king whom God has established. Earthly Jerusalem will fall. Now, if you know anything about the history of Jerusalem, you know that it fell after the time of Jesus. Early in the first century, or mid in the first century, Jerusalem fell. It had falls before that as well. In biblical history, 400 years roughly from now, Nebuchadnezzar will sack this city. And the Babylonians will come in and will turn and leave all the stones unturned. Jesus says the same thing in the passage that we read also. But listen, we won't even get through 2 Samuel before David, the king who is anointed, is chased out of Jerusalem. The king himself, the anointed one, is going to have to leave the city of David because his son is chasing him. His son is pursuing him. And we get importance of that even here in our passage. I didn't read it for us. Verse 13. This is just like what we saw uh, back earlier in chapter 3. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. Then it goes on to list. Oh, David. Oh, David. Oh, David. How could you do this? Did you not know? It's warned. It's warned in the law of God. Deuteronomy 17, 17. Don't do this if you're the king. Don't take wives and concubines unto yourselves, no matter how much of a common practice it is for everybody else. Don't do it. Ugh, 
David. And it will lead to all of the problems that will come out of this as well. Perhaps we can think of it this way. And this is helpful for me. I, I, I hope it will be helpful for you as well. Jerusalem is given. Jerusalem is a gift of God's grace. It is a restoration of fellowship, of his presence, of his love, of his worship with his people. Jerusalem is given as a gift of the grace of God. But Jerusalem is not a given. In other words, one can't be presumptuous about the king and his kingdom. One can't just take it for granted and say, well, oh, Jerusalem, there will always be Jerusalem. I'm part of Jerusalem. I'm a citizen of Jerusalem. I've always known Jerusalem. My parents were citizens of Jerusalem as well. I must be okay with being part of Jerusalem because instead it has been given, then the citizens of Zion, verse 6 of Psalm 122, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The citizens of Zion say, verse 9, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. When you join this church, you promised to do your best, to do your best to love the people who are around you right now, to pursue the peace and the purity of the church of Jesus Christ. Do you now resolve and promise these things? You promised to do your best to seek the welfare of the house of the Lord our God. That's what the citizens of Zion do. Now, you can put that in a legalistic law kind of way and it can sound like a burden, or you can say, what else would I want to do? What else would I want to do? The dwelling places of God are the sweetest places that there are. May I obey all your commands such. May they all be so delightful to me. For us, that means we seek first the kingdom of God. It does not mean that you are to move to Jerusalem. It means that Jerusalem has moved to you. To you it has come. You are the temple of the living God. You are the place of the Spirit's habitation. You, because you're in Christ, are the place of glory and of grace. Jerusalem has come to you, the church of Jesus Christ. We pray for the peace of the church. We seek the good of the church. And we do so, I won't go into this in depth in any way, we're closing up, I promise. We do so having already come to the heavenly Mount Zion, front of your bulletin. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You've come. Why? Because you're in Christ and Christ is there. Christ is there, reigning in that place, in the heavenly Jerusalem, in the heavenly Zion that has been established. So as we're 
serving together, working together, praying together, seeking the good of Zion in this place. We're doing it having already arrived at the place that is being prepared for us because our king has gone before us. I can't not end this sermon uh, but with this passage. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is a city that looks like a bride. It's a city that looks like the people of God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. That's the purpose of Jerusalem. The dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, the king, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. That's what Jerusalem is all about. The dwelling place of God with men. The story of David and the United Kingdoms going into Jerusalem and establishing, God establishing the kingdom there is the first step there. It's just, it's just a first one, but it's a sweet one that shows all that is to come as well. Jesus is on his throne in the heavenly Zion preparing it for us. Brothers and sisters, let us rejoice and be glad that the king has gone before us and secured our peace in his city. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that mighty work. We thank you that we've been taken out of the domain of darkness and have been brought into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of truth, of grace, and of goodness, your kingdom. Jesus, we pray that you would help us to pray for the peace of your kingdom and seek its welfare as much as you give us strength and as you have gifted us. We pray this in your name. Amen.